Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 62. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Samuel and follow with a consideration of parents and their children. Elkanah is an Ephraimite with a problem. He has two wives, Pnina, who is fertile, and Chana, who is infertile. Despite Elkanah's obvious love for Chana, Chana is disconsolate, especially when confronted with Pnina and her children on the occasion of the pilgrimage to the sanctuary at Shiloh, where Elkanah doles out portions of the near offering to his wives and Pnina's children. And with the passing of the years, each time they go to Shiloh, each time Elkanah doles out portions of meat from the near offering, Chana sits, the food going uneaten, as her eyes fill with tears. Eventually, Elkanah notices. Good job! And in trying to make her feel better, he probably says the worst thing you can tell a barren woman. Isn't my love for you better than ten children? Short answer? What's the fucking matter with you? What's the, what is the fucking matter with you? What are you, stupid old? So Hannah gets up from the table and heads to the sanctuary, where Eli is the high priest, and his sons, Chofni and Pinchas, serve. She is deeply embittered and pours out her heart in silent prayer, vowing that if she has ever given the opportunity to be a mother, she would pledge her son to the order of the Nazir and never cut his hair. Eli watches her, and seeing her mouth moving and without making a sound, he assumes the disturbed woman is drunk. He accosts her, and she gives it right back, but respectfully, quote, No, my lord, a bleak-spirited woman am I. Neither wine nor hard drink have I drunk. But I have poured out my heart to the Lord. Think not your servant a worthless girl, for out of great trouble and formed have I spoken till now. Eli is taken aback, but also informs Hannah that God has heard her prayer and will grant her wish. And in fact, by the time Elkanah and his family return the following year on pilgrimage, Hannah does not accompany, because she is taking care of her baby boy. He is named Shmuel, because, quote, from the Lord I asked for him. And she'll only return to the sanctuary when Shmuel is weaned so he can begin his life as a Nazir there. When that day comes, she presents herself to Eli at Shiloh and presents him with her son, quote, For this lad I prayed, and the Lord granted my petition that I asked of him, and I, on my part, granted him for the asking of the Lord. All his days he is lent to the Lord. Chapter 2 recounts Hannah's prayer of thankfulness, and with its conclusion, she parts from her son as he assumes his role as acolyte to Eli, the high priest. Meanwhile, Eli's sons, Chofni and Pinchas, are abusing their position as second and third in command at the sanctuary, taking portions of meat that do not belong to them and forcing women to wait unnecessarily to near offer at the sanctuary. The situation grows untenable, and finally Eli confronts his sons, but at this stage, he is old and feeble, and not surprisingly, his words are ignored. While Shmuel continues to grow both in size and in prominence, a man of God appears to Eli and tells him that his sons have sullied the reputation of the Kohanim and the sanctuary, and for that they both will die on the same day. Also, the high priesthood will shift to another more worthy priest from among the descendants of Aaron, and they will prosper while, quote, whoever remains from your house shall come to bow before him for a bit of silver and a loaf of bread. And Shmuel's rep keeps getting bigger, especially with Eli's eyes, quote, had begun to grow bleary 
and God's word, quote, was rare in those days. The capper comes one night while Eli and Shmuel sleep in the sanctuary. Shmuel hears a voice calling him. He assumes it's Eli, but after the third time, Eli realizes that God has chosen to speak with someone else and instructs his acolyte to reply, quote, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, which he does. And then he gets an earful about how God will punish Chofni and Pinchas and remove the priesthood from Eli's family line. In short, real bad news about someone Shmuel regarded as a father. So in the morning, you can imagine that Shmuel is a bit circumspect about the conversation and what will be the new normal in Israel. But he spills it nonetheless, and Eli accepts the verdict with quiet resolve, saying, quote, He is the Lord. What is good in his eyes, let him do. And that new normal involves Shmuel being, quote, stalwart as a prophet of the Lord. And for the first time in decades, God has a place in Shiloh and a spokesman. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In a previous episode, I talked about summum malum, or the greatest evil, a state of nature where each man is at war with his neighbor, and life, as Hobbes wrote in Leviathan, was, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. This was clearly in evidence in Giv'an, especially in the aftermath, but it seems that summum malum was also evident in the workings of the sanctuary at Shiloh, the holiest site in the land. Eli's sons, Chofni and Pinchas, heirs to the high priesthood, also did what was right in their own eyes, and because of their lineage, they did so with impunity. This is an old, unsurprising story. Men in power abuse their power, and men with absolute power abuse their power absolutely. Are we shocked? Well, perhaps a little. And here's why I say a little, because I would expect that an organization whose reason for being is as a moral lightning rod for the people, a conduit through which we connect with a moral god through the performance of ritual acts, yeah, I would expect that institution to be better and to do better than any other run-of-the-mill organization out for treasure or whatnot. In other words, synagogues should rise above petty power politics. Religious people should transcend what one would consider regular behavior. It's not just a uniform. It represents a way of life with a higher moral standard. Now, I don't want to pick at religious institutions because then I'll become more sad and disillusioned than I already am. So I want to explore a relevant tangent, if there is such a thing. A question that has always bothered me about the story of Chofni and Pinchas. Where was Eli at that time? What was he doing? As a father, didn't he have a responsibility to guide his sons and teach them how to be a good Kohen, or at least not a vicious, venal one? First of all, adults are responsible for their own behavior. Chofni and Pinchas created a corporate culture where cuts of meat reserved for God were taken for the Kohanim and their cronies. They condoned the practice of making women wait to near offer. One could only imagine that queue stretching for hours in Shiloh. Think of that line when you're trying to get your driver's license renewed, but with bleeding animals. Now, this is on Chofni and Pinchas, but there is a little bit of that hot mess that belongs to Eli, and not because he's their dad, but because he's their boss. But I want to walk that last point back a little. So Eli needs some management tips. But what about the years before his sons were also his employees? What about the years when he was just their dad? No, dad. What about you? Fuck you! No, dad! What about you? 
Oh, how I pine for those years when the children were small and so were their problems. One of the most daunting tasks I face as an educator is not teaching the book of Job to preteens and in Hebrew. No, 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 no. One of the most daunting tasks I face is telling parents about how their children behave in school. It's never fun sharing unpleasant things with anyone, but sharing something unpleasant with a parent about their child is downright deadly. And I should qualify not every time, but when it goes sour, it curdles and quick. Because in doing so, the parent is forced to confront something that perhaps they never considered before, that their child is a human being with flaws that no amount of love or gifts or corrective surgery can minimize or paper over. But these particular parents do not accept this, or they are aware of it and rather not talk about it, or would rather pretend they didn't know, or perhaps it would be more effective to put their fingers in their ears and say, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! It's like color blindness, but instead of not seeing red or green, it's about being unable to see flaws or find fault. Which is strange because these same parents are Hawkeye quick to see the flaws in other children and find fault in other adults, especially the adults sitting across from them when the terrible thing is uttered in their presence. And I should emphasize that this phenomenon, this child blindness, is a small percentage of parents I encounter. It's so small, yet so soul-sucking and squeaky wheel that it attracts a disproportionate amount of attention. For me, one of the great joys is hearing about my children uh, and realizing that whether it be in home or school, they behave pretty much the same. Sometimes adorable, giving and thoughtful, and sometimes very much less so. Because they are people. Smaller people, but people nonetheless. And say what you will about Eli, his ability to not see is as finely honed as a ninja's is in not being seen. And this ability, it seems, carried over from the home into the sanctuary workplace. Alas and alack, when a father loves his children that much that he thinks that not seeing who they are is actually better than seeing them for what they are, one can wonder what kind of love that is. But as the text tells us, Eli is blind, both literally and figuratively. And besides, I do not think Eli is one of those kinds of parents. I think his relationship with his sons is framed by the benign neglect of a stereotypical patriarch who is more preoccupied by his career. So it's clear that Chofni and Pinchas's mischief should be a matter between high priest and his lieutenants, as well as the thousands of ill-treated pilgrims. But I also believe that the verdict handed down by God to Eli and his sons and grandsons is spot on. Eli must witness the end of his family line as high priests and the removal of Chofni and Pinchas, even though we have read in Deuteronomy 24 that the sins of the sons should have no bearing on the father, or for that matter, the grandsons. Eli's blindness, both literal and figurative, is not just a sign of his age. It is also his fatal flaw. He might claim that he is guilty of loving and adoring his children too much, or that he was too busy being high priest to notice any hijinks, but in either case, this not seeing is a form of malfeasance that arguably created the environment for his sons to sin with impunity. And for this, he must pay. And, spoilers, he does. If you liked what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show page on Facebook or Google+. 
or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextjew.com, or write a brief review at the iTunes store, or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it'll help me and other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 63, when we continue with the book of Samuel, chapters 4 through 7.